Good morning, church. It's so good to be with you today. I invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 103. If you don't have your Bible, it uh, is printed in your bulletin. This morning, we have the wonderful privilege of being able to come to the Lord's table together, where by faith we commune with the living God and delight ourselves in all of his benefits. Considering that, I think Psalm 103 is a very appropriate text for us uh, because King David enumerates many of those benefits of the grace of God. One commentator said that in the galaxy of the Psalter, this is the star of the first magnitude. It brings us to the highest height of glory. It reveals to us the very core being of the living God. And it teaches us that no matter the season or the circumstance, the Lord is always, always worthy of our praise. So let's read it together, Psalm 103. King David writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this morning, uh, for gathering us together, for giving us your word, for inviting us to your table and we pray that by your spirit, you would settle our hearts and our minds, that you would use these means of grace and cause us to see clearly the beauty and the glory of Jesus, and that you would create within all of us a heart of worship, that we might give you the praise that is due your matchless name. We love you, O God, and it's in the name of the risen King Jesus we pray, amen. Julia Sweeney famous comedian. She's famous for the It's Pat skit on Saturday Night Live. She currently 
sits on the board with the Secular Coalition for America and Freedom from Religion Foundation. Several years ago, uh, she spoke about her journey from Catholicism to atheism. And describing that journey, she raised the question, why does God need our praise? This is what she writes. The whole idea that there's a God who cares whether people believe in him or not is ridiculous. If there is a God, why would he care if people believe in him? Furthermore, how insecure must he be if he needs to say, everyone to say, you're number one. You're number one over all the other gods. You're the best. Why does God need our praise? It's a question that many non-believers and atheists have. And it's really, if we're honest, I think a question that sometimes we have thought about too as Christians. Why does God desire our praise? Why is it important for us to gather here in this sanctuary and worship him together? Many years before Mrs. Sweeney, C.S. Lewis answered that question beautifully. And this is what he said. He said, it's not out of mere compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a wonderful new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because your travel partner does not care. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is graciously inviting us into his joy. The Bible tells us that you and I were created to to worship God. Page after page, every sentence gives us the reasons that we are to praise God. But Psalm 103 reminds us that it's actually when we praise the Lord that you and I are most satisfied. Jesus tells us the same in John chapter 15. Abide in me. Abide in my word, Jesus says. Offer yourself up as a living sacrifice, as it were. Why? so that my joy might be in you and therefore your joy might be complete. That is, that it's impossible to have true abiding joy and to be satisfied apart from delighting in Christ. God is worthy of our praise, but it's actually when we praise him that the Lord blesses us. Now, as we just read, God commands all of creation, every sector of creation to praise him, the angels, creation, his, his dominion, his works. But the primary focus is on humanity. That's where David spends 99% of his verses. And the reason is, is because you and I are the only ones in creation that need to be convinced to praise God. The angels get one verse, creation gets one verse, you and I get the rest of them, why? Because you and I are the only ones that need to be reminded or convinced or changed to praise the one true and living God. Either because one, we're not converted, like Mrs. Sweeney, and we find no reason to praise the Lord, or for whatever reason, even as Christians, we have simply forgotten God. We forget God often. Oftentimes we forget him in our suffering. How could I possibly worship him with all this pain I'm experiencing? Oftentimes we forget him in the busyness of our lives. There's so many things that I have to do. I have no time to sit down and ponder uh, God and his word. Or maybe it's because of our self-centeredness or or put it frankly, it's because we're worshiping other things as idolaters. Whatever the case, the only result of forgetting God like that 
of taking our eyes off of him is hopelessness, joylessness, and that miserable feeling of not being satisfied. Maybe that's some of us this morning. You have so many things in your life, so many wonderful things, but you're still discontent. You feel dissatisfied. Uh, maybe you are struggling with guilt and shame, and maybe you've been struggling with those things for, for quite a long time. Maybe you're just tired. Not physically tired, but just spiritually tired. Maybe you're weary, and you're just inching along. And, and David says in this passage, maybe that's, maybe that's the case because you have forgotten God. I love Psalm 103 because King David, a man who, who had forgotten God often in his life, wrangles all of our hearts and brings them to a place where once again we are reminded where true joy and true satisfaction is found. And we are shown, whatever the circumstance, God is always worthy of our praise. We just have two points this morning before we come to the Lord's table. And as a fellow uh, forgetter of God, I pray they bless you as much as they've blessed me. Uh, Point number one, David shows us how we begin to praise God. He shows us how to snap out of our spiritual apathy, how to snap back into reality, how we begin once again to, to praise God as we've been called to. And how do we begin? He says, talk to yourself. That's what David's doing here. He's talking to himself in a mirror. Notice that this passage is not addressed to God. It certainly glorifies God, but it's not, about, it's, it's not addressed to God. We benefit from Psalm 103, but it's not addressed to us or, or Israel either. It's addressed to David. Much like Psalm 42, when the writer says, why are you cast down, O my soul? David is taking himself by the neck and says, David, what are you doing? Remember who he is and praise the Lord. That's what David's doing. Why? Because like the rest of us, David had a tendency to forget God. It's important for us to know that the concept of remembering and forgetting in the Bible is much more than simple mental recall. When we see to remember, we should probably think of Colossians 3, when the Apostle Paul calls the church to set our mind on on heavenly things where Christ is. To set your mind on something in the Bible is to have it so central to your consciousness, to have so central to your being that it just controls everything that you do. That's what it means to set your mind on something, to remember. Now, the problem with us is because of the fall, we now remember the wrong things and forget the wrong things. We're all messed up. We forget the wrong things and remember the wrong things because of the fall. So, for example, we forget those things which ought to comfort our hearts. It's easy for us to forget those things. It's easy for us to forget those things which ought to evoke us to a posture of of worship. But it's very easy for us to remember, isn't it? Those things that we've done, those things that others have done to us that lead us to shame, that lead us to guilt or resentment or fear. It's easy for us to do that. That's why one person who we don't even really like that much or isn't very important to us could say one really nasty thing to you and it automatically outweighs a hundred other compliments people have given you. Isn't that the absolute worst 
It just ruins our day. Sometimes it ruins our week. Why? Because we remember the wrong things and forget the wrong things. But Paul says in Romans 1, worst off, we have forgotten God. Now, that's our natural bent as sinners. We don't want to remember God. We don't want to be accountable to anyone, which is why we we look to other people and other places for comfort and affirmation and, and rescue. But here's the irony of that. In forgetting God, we forget our hope. When we take our eyes off of him, we start remembering the wrong things and forgetting the wrong things. When we take our eyes off him, we remember our sin, but we forget his grace, don't we? We all struggle with that, I think. But church, here's the kicker. Here's the good news. God still in his grace gives us the key to break free from that wrong remembering and that wrong forgetting. And what is it? Preach to your souls, King David says. It's not just that we recite our favorite Bible verses that we've written on index cards. That's good. But but we take those Bible verses and, and we take those doctrines and we take those promises of God and we pray them hot until our hearts set fire. We think about them. We meditate on them. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite uh, preachers and scholars, who struggled with spiritual depression and, and anxiety, I think most of his adult life, said one of the key arts of living this Christian life is learning how to talk to yourself. We spend way too much time listening to our deceitful hearts and and way too many times listening to the evil one and talking heads out in the world. We need to spend more time listening to God and taking those truths and preaching them to our own hearts. Because when we do that, it lifts us out of apathy. It sends Satan fleeing. Isn't it true that oftentimes, and I'm not talking about not taking our problems seriously. Of course we should. We're not putting our heads in the sand, but isn't it true that sometimes when we have issues or or pains in our life, we just microscope down onto them? We're just focused on them. And when that happens, what happens? we'll, we'll, We'll forget God, don't we? We're just focused on us. What David is calling us to do is to telescope our lives, to fixate on the grandeur and the power and the greatness of God, because when you do that, Everything else is put into its place. Church, David is saying that all of us in this room, if you're in Christ, are preachers. You might not have a snazzy robe like me, Todd, or the choir. I mean, you could get one, I suppose. But all of us in this room are preachers. And David says the first one we must be preaching to is ourself. Now, in the meat of this chapter, in verses 3 through 19, he gives us all the ammunition, all of the, the points to this soul sermon we ought to be preaching. He gives us a myriad of reasons of why we should be praising God. And the first thing that he says in verses 3 through 5 is, church, remember the benefits of his grace. Now, when we read verses 3 through 5, and really verses 10 and 11, which is kind of a commentary of these first several verses, did you notice the repetition of that word All. I find it very interesting. King David says, forget not all his benefits. Praise the one who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your disease. Not some church, but all. 
think about the scope of what David is saying here. Think about those categories that he mentions in those first couple of verses, sin and health and disease and illness, life and death, major categories. And David is saying that all of those things, including the things in between, all of that is under the purview of God's grace for his people. Just think about that. If your life is a rock, Christian, God's grace is water, and he's pouring it out onto that rock where it's seeping down into every nook and every cranny and every seam, and he's filling it all. Pretty much what David is saying is that we must remember the gospel. Because all these verses, it's it's pointing us to the gospel, isn't it? The main problem behind all of our other problems is is that not only do we forget God, but we forget the gospel. It's no longer vivid to us. We forget the essence and the power and the beauty of the gospel. Well, thank the Lord that through King David, he gives us this Old Testament technicolor vision of the gospel that we might be reminded. Just look at these verses. Uh, Praise the Lord who forgives all your iniquity. Well, how does the Lord do that? We We are sinful people. How does he forgive our iniquity? Well, Isaiah tells us God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is the the spotless, unblemished lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Praise the one who doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. How? Because God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God treated Jesus as we deserve so that God might treat us as Jesus deserves. That's how. Praise the one who remembers our sins no more. How in the world is that possible? Because all of our sin, past, present, and future, God has dealt with in his son. And therefore, he refuses to remember your sins again. And the only reason that you and I should remember the fact that we're sinners is because it gives us a heart of praise. There is now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. As those who know they're sinners understand how amazing that verse is. We have been redeemed from the pit, church. And David says, don't you forget it. This grace of God, it's so expansive. It's so comprehensive and full. It never runs out on you, church. And David says, don't forget it. Remember that your sin is never too great that the grace of God can't cleanse you. Remember that your illness is never too severe that the grace of God can't sustain you in it or deliver you from it, whether if in this life, most certainly the next, when he returns and makes all things new as we've been studying in the book of Revelation. Never forget that that wherever you've been or whatever you've done in the past that causes you great shame, God has the power to deliver you from the pit, to break you free from whatever prison you're in, to bring you into his palace where he crowns you with all of his glory and affection. Remember that, church, is what David says. Remember, there are many things in this life that threaten to overwhelm us, and they often do, but they will never destroy you. Why? Because in Christ, we're more than conquerors. And whatever your needs are, God has promised to supply them more than that to satisfy you which of course he has done in Christ. He has satisfied his own wrath in Jesus and in Jesus he has promised to satisfy your thirst for beauty, your thirst for significance, your thirst for meaning, your thirst for joy. There are so many testimonies out in the world, you can just Google them, so many rich and famous folks who have accomplished so much, who at the end of their life are still left wanting 
Why is that? Because our hearts will always be restless until they rest and delight in Christ, whom God has freely offered to us. Friends, why in the world will we ever even want to try to live outside the grip of God's grace? Praise the one, O my soul, and forget not his benefits of grace. Secondly, we're called to remember the character of the grace giver. We see this in verses 6 through 12. Now, David tells us so much here about the character of God. I mean, we don't have enough time. God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. I want to I focus on verse 8. And the reason is because I think as Christians, oftentimes while we struggle to believe the gospel is because we doubt the heart of God behind the gospel. You know, God is gracious, but he, he gives grace reluctantly. You know, pretty soon he's just going to stop giving me grace because, because I keep on falling. God might bless me, but he does it with grinded teeth. God might like me, but he certainly doesn't love me. I don't even love myself. How could he possibly love me? We struggle with stuff like that all the time, don't we? But in verse 8, David blows all of those doubts and questions out of the water. When David says that God, that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, he didn't just invent that out of thin air. He's actually quoting Ezekiel, or I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7, which others have called the spine of the Old Testament. Uh, One scholar said that outside the incarnation itself, this might be the high point of God's self-revelation. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. A beautiful passage, but it has a very dark context. Uh, Two chapters before, you might remember, after God had rescued Israel from the land of slavery, from the house of Egypt, rescues them in his grace, and he and Moses are up on uh, Mount Sinai. Israel's left to itself. And they decide to throw themselves a party, if you remember. And what did they do? They fashioned themselves a a golden lamb, didn't they? Or a golden, what is it called? A golden calf. They made a golden calf. And what did they do next? They worshiped that golden calf to show their appreciation to Wale of all of his grace and mercy. They worship a golden calf. and, And they have this party and it slips into great debauchery and immorality. Are you kidding me? After God, in his mercy and his grace, rescued these people, that's what they do? Are you, are you serious? Now, God deals with their sin. God does not play with the sins of his people. But as you get into chapter 33, there's, there's this great angst and fear. Is God going to continue leading these rebellious, wayward people? And so the mediator, Moses, he gets down on his knees and he pleads with God. He prays on behalf of all of Israel. And what's amazing is, is that God agrees with Moses, and he, and he ratifies and renews his covenant. But, but Moses understands uh, that these people, they're going to do stuff like this again. They might not make a, another golden calf, but they're sinners. And he says, God, how can, I, how can I trust that you'll continue leading us? I know these jokers. I know who I am. We're going to continue sinning against you. How can I trust that you will be our God and we your people? And so God takes Moses and puts him in a cleft of the rock. And he lets his glory pass before him. That in chapter 34, he explains his glory to Moses. And he says, Moses, this is who I am. I am merciful and I'm gracious. And I'm slow to anger. And I'm abounding in steadfast love. That's who I am. 
and my very being. The point is, friends, God's love and his grace and his mercy and his faithfulness is not experienced by us in a vacuum. Israel sinned greatly. Moses sinned. David was a sinner. We are too, but it's against that dark backdrop that God reveals to us his heart, the very center of his being. One scholar, Dane Ortland, he says, in these passages, God reveals himself to us, but he does not say, I am the Lord, the intolerant one, or I am the Lord, the angry one, or I am the Lord, the perfect and the exacting one. What we see God reveal to us is that his highest priority, his deepest delight, and his first reaction, his heart is mercy and grace. Friends, that's who God is. He, he loves us with, with a steadfast love. That's his covenant love. That's his hesed love. Which means that he refuses to forsake us even when we give him reason to. Because his love is never failing. And he's not just existing in that. He's abounding in it. Can you imagine? Our knee-jerk reaction is to expect God to be angry with us. But in this passage, God wraps his arms around us and he pulls us to his shoulder and he says, this is who I am, church. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. God shows his own love for us in this, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says, as those who are united to Jesus, there's not one thing in this world, heaven or hell, even your own failure, that could ever separate you from the love of God. David is wrangling our hearts to a place that we might be convinced that we're loved beyond measure. How do you free yourself from fear and guilt and shame? Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not the character of the grace giver. Lastly, David says, remember that the grace giver, the Lord God Almighty, is also your father, church. I just find it absolutely amazing that after all of these jewels that David gives us in in chapter 103, to convince us that God loves us, his, his lasting image that he gives us to really seal the deal is that God is our father, Church, God made us. He created us. He fashioned us together. If you're in Jesus, he has redeemed you, but that's not it. He has brought you into his family. For those who fear the Lord, that is in repentance and faith, you've turned to Jesus. God has brought you into his family. This is amazing, this relationship we have. Now, the New Testament expands this relationship in the doctrine of adoption when we get to the New Testament, particularly Romans 8 and and Galatians. And this this, uh, doctrine of adoption has a very near and dear place in my heart as my wife and I have adopted my son and we're in that process again. But adoption is it's central to the gospel. I want you to think about the doctrine of adoption as it applies to you, Christian. All right? First off, it's only possible because of God's initiating grace. You did not choose God. He chose you. <laughs> you are not God's kids, his children, by the mere fact that he made you. We are God's children's by virtue of his redemption. And furthermore, it's not like God was just stuck with you, church. It's not like he just thought to himself, well, this is all I got left. I guess I'll redeem them. God didn't say that. He chose you before the foundation of the world. 
He set his love upon you. He chose to delight in you. Can you imagine? Do you think about the the fatherhood of God? The fact that God is your father, that he chose you to bring you into his heart so he shows you the affection and the cherishing that he shows his only begotten son for all of eternity? Church, not only that, our legal status has changed. We're no longer viewed by God as sinners and rebels and traitors. We are his children. And this is legally the case before God, okay? We are his kings and queens. We're his royal sons and daughters who've been brought into his family. We're heirs of God, Paul says, and co-heirs of Christ, legally. That's who you are if you're a Christian. The best day of my life is at my son's finalization day. If you've adopted a child, you you know how amazing this is, or if you've talked to someone that's done it, there's nothing like it. My son, Eli, was my son prior to this moment. I loved him. (laughs) But to have it official for the judge at the chancellery court downtown to sign his name, for my boy to receive my last name, for him to get a new birth certificate, a new social security card, for this boy legally to be a Kimbrough. That's what's happened to you in Christ church. Legally before God, you've been made a son or a daughter with all the rights and privileges that are Christ. That's what's happened to you. But not only that, it's also familial. We've received a spirit of adoption by whom we can cry out, Abba, Father. That's not the legal name. That's the family name. That's the couch name. That's the living room name. That's I'm going to climb up on my daddy's lap and cry out to him name. That's the name that we're able to call out to the creator of the cosmos. That intimate relationship that Jesus enjoyed for all of eternity. When Eli cries out to me, he does not need to present me his decree of adoption for me to come to him. He cries out and I'm there. Why? Because I'm his daddy and I love him beyond measure. And what David is saying, what Paul is saying is that we can expect that same response from the creator of the cosmos when we cry out to him because he is our Abba. Our adoption is also transformative. You're not, you're being transformed day by day by that adopting spirit who's slowly but surely transforming you into the image that you behold. Jesus Christ, we're on that day to, day to come. will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye into his glory. That's who you are. Adoption is at the center of the gospel. Because of the gospel, God has made himself our father and we his children. And as his children, brothers and sisters, we have an infinite number of reasons to praise him. But David gives us a few as he describes his fatherhood. First off, he is our compassionate father. That word compassion is describing a very tender mother, womb-like love. The creator of the cosmos, our king, our father, loves us perfectly and tenderly, is what David says. He's attentive to you. Verse 14, he made you. He knows you inside and out, and he loves you still. (laughs) And he's committed himself to you. And as we see in the rest of this passage, verses 15 through 19, he's eternal which means his promises and his love for you is eternal too. We are fragile and we will fail, but our God is enduringly strong. He is the king over all things and his love will never run out on you. Church, we have more than 10,000 reasons to praise the Lord, don't we? 
But if you ever find yourself in a place where you can't or don't want to, take yourself by the nape of the neck and say, praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not the benefits of my Father's grace. The writer of our first hymn that we sang this morning, Henry Light, uh, that hymn is based off Psalm 103. Henry did not have a very easy life. He had a, a very hard life. His father left his family when he was an infant, and his mother and his brother died before the age of nine. He was orphaned. As he grew older, uh, he had chronic illness, chronic tuberculosis. And so he was always sick, always coughing, always weak. He became a pastor. He served this little township. He served things in that town, like the, the prison, the docks where people worked. Often went on notice. He died very early, 54. Before he died, he wrote this hymn. Go back later and read those verses. Read Psalm 103. How could a man that suffered so much praise God? Because he talked to himself. He reminded himself that he was a child of the king and he intentionally knelt before the unending fountain of God's mercy, grace, and love. Church, I promise you, you will never regret praising God because to do so is to live in his joy.